Welcome to The Mark Cameron Show. We discover why people do what they do, how they do it, and what's in the future of their work. My guest today is coming from Australia, and his name is Rob Rossi. Rob's a qualified medical doctor who has significant business experience. He founded Time Doctor in 2011, which has become an eight-figure SaaS business with over 130 full-time team members spread out across 31 countries, all working remote. He's also the co-founder of the world's largest conference about remote work called Running Remote, and he's just released a book of the same name. Here is my conversation with Rob. Good evening from South Queensbury, I think it is, Rob, and uh, good good afternoon to yourself, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's really good to chat with you. Yeah, so um, we're, we're connecting, your team reached out and um, you're exploring some really exciting um, elements with work and there's a book coming out, so I'm, I'm really excited to dive into what we're going to explore today. Um, I'd love to just, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and um, what is it that, that you're up to at the minute. So I'm actually a former medical doctor. So I trained as a medical doctor and I worked for a few years as a medical doctor and then I got into business. I actually started a few internet businesses and then that evolved into what I have now as a software business. I've got 130 staff around the world and we all work remotely. So uh, we're, we're just a completely remote business with people in 30 different countries. Wow. Um, so that's that's uh, what I'm doing at the moment is running that business wow. uh, and, yeah, enjoying that kind of remote lifestyle of working from anywhere. Yeah. And uh, what what's led you to that? Um, what what was growing up for you like and uh, what was your what was your story? I was when I was uh, a, a kid, I was very focused on academics but I didn't know what I wanted to do and then I I sort of didn't know if I wanted to do medicine I I, I got into medicine uh, but I, I ended up uh, doing electrical engineering then doing and then changing my mind at the oh, I'm going to do the medicine because it's more on the frontier right it's more on the cutting edge yeah. so I did that but I was always thinking about this entrepreneurship. I was starting a business, being successful in business. Also, I was thinking about, well, what if I want to just travel and have that freedom? And once I'd studied medicine, I think it's an, it is an amazing profession. Like, it's incredible. But I felt a little bit trapped <laughs> to say, like, oh, this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a doctor, which is probably a silly way to think about it, but... I, I did feel slightly like I was trapped um, versus I could just be have complete freedom. Uh, not that I necessarily have complete freedom now. I do freedom <laughs> like the mind space, I think. But yes. yeah. And then I, then I started a few businesses on the side while doing medicine. Uh, lots of different, but even, even in medical school, I started some business ventures wow. and then that became successful. And then it sort of went from there to well it's hard to be a doctor and then be half a doctor you really have to devote your life to it otherwise you're not really serving your patients in that right. proper way um so so that ended up just going full on into business and then evolving from there wow uh, doctors with side hustles is not something i've i've been that familiar with so this is interesting <laughs> um, 
yeah. <laughs> how, how, how did that um, occur for you? Were you always quite curious about the world, curious about, uh, you know, the human body as well as business? What, what drives curiosity for you? It was a kind of ambition, I would say, like I wanted to be successful. And the root cause or underneath that is, is trying to prove myself, right? right? I, okay, I, this is this being um, basically being someone who's significant because I really looked into my psychology and why I do things. And that's definitely the root cause. And I'm not sure that that's the most powerful root cause. Um, but once you identify it, and you you look at it, then it, it, it's better because you you're understanding your psychology. It's not as um, destructive because I, I think trying to be significant as a cause can be quite destructive. Right. But because because I've identified it and I understand what I'm doing, I think it's less of a negative. Right. And what I've transformed later in my life because like part of that is like being successful monetarily, right? And so that I can do everything that I want. With money wise, so once I've achieved that, which I already have achieved that, then there's this question, which is like, well, what next? And actually, the first time I made, I was actually in my parents' bedroom, and I was just myself, and I was had a business where, uh, and I'm a medical doctor, but I was just, I was still living with my parents, <laughs> and um, I was, I was in the bed room and I was doing this business from the side on the internet and I had like I was receiving these stacks of checks and I had like you know checks from the US and I was earning like a huge amount of money uh, and basically you know I was financially free I mean there's nothing really else that I wanted to do with that money right and you know that was exciting for a second and then it was actually quite disappointing yeah um because at that stage I didn't really have this idea of well i had some sort of idea that i would be be happy when i made a lot of money <laughs> and, and then i'm like oh hang on a sec <laughs> well now what okay i've got all the money now now what am i going to do there's, there's like literally nothing that yeah. that i wanted to do because I, I don't have this desire to go and buy expensive cars because i or, or, or um other expensive things yeah you can only do i think it's just pointless so what's the point in doing that right <laughs> yeah okay and then if i'm going to be free to do anything what am i actually going to do without anything I, I, there's this big hole in the, in the desire like in this whole frame of what i'm trying to do with my life wow wow and yeah. um from i mean that's a that's a an amazing place to hit which sounds like relatively you know early on um yeah when when we're going through that process uh, significance is such a fascinating term I, I was thinking around that myself of um what we choose to make significant and to prioritize and, and raise up you know maybe for some it's like you say it might have been finance it might have been for others it's family or career or it might be specific industries that we're like that's that's what's changing the world that's where the most good is that's what significance is mm-hmm. there's an interesting process i suppose of admitting that we we choose what is significant through the the lens that we're looking through it and maybe that's part of the uh, you get awake to it and an opportunity to reflect on that rather than it like you say sneaking up on you and driving you without you being aware of it as a driver um so mm-hmm. eventually what, what was some of that process of 
how did you explore your psychology and uh, what you were making meaning of and, and, and what you were yeah. thinking around significance? I did a lot of personal development work. So I did Anthony Robbins, I did uh, Landmark yeah. and other personal development. And that personal development led me to just think about what was causing, what was driving me. And yeah. So that's how it came, basically. By doing all of that work, I, I started to understand what was driving me. Yeah, yeah. Wow, huge benefit in those. Um, I know I've, I've been yeah. reading the precursor to landmark a, a book about Werner Erhard who um, okay. ran Est which then became landmark and there's there's something it's fascinating something quite arresting about the style of it you know he was uh, a challenging character he'd get in people's faces and he'd he'd call out yeah. the game that they were playing on the surface and get after what was going underneath yeah. and um, yeah. you know a real challenge to the psychology and it sounded like it could wake people up. Yeah, I think so. I think it does wake people up. I'm, my my wife actually has done a lot of landmark recently, and and she's really changed after doing that. And it's it's also just helped our relationship a lot. So we yeah. we find it hard to argue. I mean, basically, we argue for a few seconds, and then we're like, "Oh, I can see what we're doing here." It doesn't. It doesn't go into this like cycle of. Da, 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 da. Yeah. We're still arguing with my son, though, so I still have like a, a cycle of yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Well, yeah. There's um, there's a lot, a lot to them. I think there's um, in the British culture, you know, and, and maybe parts of Australia, there's there's this kind of um way of being which is is kind of getting along or finding things a laugh and trying to make okay. things easier or ignore conflict um there's, mm -hmm. there's a fascinating pattern people could go through psychologically which is to engage with different parts of the self that are um defensive or are, are trying to connect with somebody and uh that's beautiful yeah. you see it you see the ability to connect with the person um rather than grind down into the issues yeah so you've you've gone through a bit of this this journey you were exploring there was entrepreneurship um and and then how did you land upon the remote work piece because you did it pre-covid uh, as i understand which uh, yeah must must have made it yeah, a long time ago so we actually i had i ended up with a business going to the philippines and i had a team there probably 30 people in an office. So I had this expensive office, really nice office. And then I just started to not really enjoy the Philippines anymore. I wanted to travel more uh, and I wanted to just have this freedom that if I'm not going to be in the office, then this, why would the other team members be there? And if you have the office there, then you're always drawn to come back, right? You're always thinking, right. well, I have to go there. I have to show my face yeah. every now and then at a minimum. And so that concept that I that I didn't really want to be there myself led me to think, well, I'm just going to get rid of this offer. And plus the expense, it was expensive. So I thought, just let, let's get rid of this expense. So I actually then created software around that. And that's, that's part of the software that I have now. And then um, and then we've just been really into remote work as a concept. And we took it to the extreme. The real benefit for the business, I think, is that you can now hire from any place and it gives you so much more flexibility so if you think about 
if you had to hire from just one little area in your city, it would be very hard to find the right person. Well, yeah. if you've got a big city, you can find them, but you're still restricted dramatically compared with the whole world. So as, as soon as you're expanding it out to the whole world, you get a lot more availability of talent. Wow. And this is the number one benefit, I think, from the business point of view. Obviously, you're losing some level of personal connection. You're losing uh, that intimacy and, and you are losing something, but you're gaining a massive mm. amount of ability to get talent and, and the flexibility and the freedom. And also now, a lot of people are demanding that they want to work remotely. Most people, I'd say like 80, 90%. Once they go remote, they don't really want to go. It's just, just a hassle to, to yeah. go into the office every day unless they particularly like that atmosphere. And um, a lot of them really would prefer to work remotely. Right. So what, what do you think drives that? Why? Um, what, what's behind this desire to be remote that is you know, bigger than the pandemic? Because you were obviously seeing it real early. What were some of the motivators for for people who were employees to be remote? I think the main one would be the commute. Mm -hmm. Like in my view, the commute of trying having to go there. The second is the flexibility. So being able to start at slightly different times, being able to take the kids to school, all these things are a bit harder to do when you're in an office. And then the third is that availability to connect with people from different areas so that you don't have to be in that one city. Yeah. And then also that relates to the living costs. So you're, you're living in a different part of the UK or living in a different part of, in Australia and UK, London's incredibly expensive. I'm um, in Sydney. It's incredibly expensive. So if you want to reduce your costs, you can't do it living in Sydney. Like yeah. you, you just, you just can't because it's so expensive. And so to reduce your cost, you have to move out, but then you lose the job availability in Sydney. So if you're no longer losing that, then that's why you're seeing these small towns uh, around Sydney that are really, people want to go to those towns. Yeah. Um, I think the really remote country towns are not necessarily benefiting because people don't want to go there, but the beautiful towns along the coast right next to the ocean yeah. They're really benefiting in terms of property prices. And to me, I see, I see there's no reason why they couldn't be even more expensive than Sydney mm. or London. Yeah. Like, why is London so expensive just because it's London? Yeah. I mean, why can't lot. this beautiful seaside town be more expensive than London? Because actually the the amount of availability of house, houses in that beautiful town is smaller than London. London is millions of houses yeah. but the small town there's there's only going to be a few and they and they usually have planning laws where they restrict building more yeah and i can see so where, um, theory i have sydney um, my time in sydney uh 2006 to 2008 there was something about the surrounding towns that uh, you'd you'd retreat to so you go north and uh we'd camp up at the basin just in the past the northern beaches area and that was yeah. like that really is memorable time in my life. And then another point would be going down south to Jarvis Bay. That's maybe maybe two hours south of Sydney. I'm like, right. And again, just like yeah. stunning scenery. My my first day being there, I woke up in, in Jarvis Bay after dropped my bags off at the flat, went away with my flatmates, woke up in Jarvis Bay. You think this is this is beautiful. And then there's this all these areas that are 
seem to be named after Scottish towns. Uh, you've got like Abernethy and Hamden Bridge, and you can see why the Scots quite enjoyed South Sydney. Uh, it was it was a beautiful area, so I can I can see why that that draws an appeal, and we're seeing that up here and. Uh, in Scotland, people moved out of London when the business rates got too high and they could get the quality of life, yeah. maybe of Edinburgh or beyond. Um, but they also could then dial in remotely and think through what kind of lifestyle do I want to live? What kind of quality of life yeah. do I have? What relationships do I value? Um, and and there's something amazing about that, that people are choosing to to think more creatively about the whole of their life. Um, yeah. What's it been like seeing that trend grow then over the last 10, 12 years? Well, it's it's really with COVID that it's grown massively. And our business has also grown massively. We we just recently came out with a book called Running Remote. So uh, it would have been good if we did that during the pandemic. Um, but it's still, it's a, it's a great kind of focus on, and we've got all this, we've got a conference on remote work as well. Right. Uh, also called running remote. So we, we, we've been teaching people how to work remotely yeah. for a while and, and also just sharing the best practices because there are some very big businesses that are completely remote. Yeah. And all of the businesses that were forced to do it in the pandemic, they didn't necessarily adopt the best style because it's a different style of working. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the things that is important is to think about more asynchronous communication. So instead of just always talking and meeting, 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 you actually send the information asynchronously. The person is not interrupted from the meeting. A lot of people with the when they went to remote, they they're actually working more because they had more meetings. Yeah. It's all on Zoom. Yeah. Um, it's just it, it, it's very fatiguing that that way of working versus you can actually people will send me updates and I actually watch them on double speed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening to it. It's like, it literally takes me half the time that if I was in the meeting, because I'm listening to the, that information. And of course you use meetings for certain types of communication where you'd need that really heavy back and forth, or it's more emotional or so we do have meetings, but we try to minimize them. Wow. And that, that's a really interesting space now because during the pandemic, it was like we were there by necessity. You know, people decided I'm I'm just going to work the extra hours in the day sometimes to try and add value to the business to maintain their job or sometimes just to keep distraction from the world going on fire as it seemed through some of it. And imagine now there's a fascinating time where it seems like organisations could be tempted to just try and do away with it. Let's just get back to normal. Let's just get back to what was because some of the associations with remote work might be connected to, to huge stresses, uh, huge spikes in stress, gentle tra- mm-hmm. or some trauma from, from pandemic culture. How, how would you work with an organisation or advise a group that are trying to maybe forget about it and say, we're no, we just want to get back to what was? Uh, what, what do they need to um, do? Yeah, I think it depends on the company. So my philosophy has evolved to be: you're either in or you're out. Really, mm-hmm. like you're in the office and and that's it. And and then you you're in the office at least four days a week. Like it's basically most. If you have a little bit of flexibility around it, that's fine. 
you know, just for people that need some flexibility, that's great. But if you're only in the office one day a week, you're losing most of the office benefits and you're still maintaining the costs and you're maintaining the downside. The downside is of the office is everybody has to be in that city, yeah. right? So if, you, if you're in there one or two days a week, everyone still needs to be in that city. Although I suppose they could be in the slightly satellite areas. Yeah. So maybe that works for one day a week if, you, if you're going with that model. But usually you certainly can't have people in other countries flying in every week. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't work from that point of view. And, I, and I, I love this benefit of having people in multiple different regions, yeah. uh, even if it's similar time zones. But if you're in the UK, why not be able to hire from the entire, from all of Europe? Yeah. rather than just the uk right yeah like yeah. europe's a much bigger place much more availability of the talent and yes all similar time zones plus you got africa yeah. don't forget about africa you can hire people from nigeria and you know so many egypt like yeah. they're all similar time zones and yeah yeah and and then um with companies that are quite keen now to think about hybrid think about well we recognize we probably need to offer flexibility, but we're, we're struggling how to, how to do that, how to think through it. How, how do they yeah. navigate that complexity? I'm, I'm not sure that I think that they're in this interim stage that was caused by COVID people want to work flexibly and they're not really willing to go all the way to complete yeah. flexibility of complete remote. Yeah. So they still have the office and it's just a habit. So if they're in that situation where people are working only one day a week, uh, I would go one way or the other. You, like you either commit to the office or you, yeah. and which means four days a week. And unfortunately people are not going to like that. You go back to the exactly how it is and you get all of the office benefits or you go to more complete flexibility yeah. and maybe meeting, you know, four times a year flying in. Yeah. yeah. Um, but not, not having to go there every single week. So I'm not a fan of once a week uh, in the office. I, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, but I but I, I do think that some businesses, of course, are just going to go back to the office completely, and that's fine if yeah. that's what they choose. Yeah. So, certainly there's types of work where you, you have to do that. But um, Yeah. So So this move that's happened, uh what what are some of the benefits that you you observed early days and you thought okay this is going to be game changing for the world this is going to add advantage alongside um the the flexibility um what kind of happiness do you see in employees uh in the way that they treat each other as teams because i think some people worry that the relational downsides will occur if they're not getting all the soft skills but what are the relational upsides by being remote in terms of the the the, di the dynamic and the dialogue between your teams? You you should have more quality um, when you're on a Zoom. Uh, there's there's sometimes the people that are a little bit shyer or introverts they can present themselves better remotely because yeah. they can actually present their work asynchronously. Um, they may still struggle on Zoom. So there's there's a bit more quality there. Yeah. Uh, the big benefit, though, is just the, the flexibility for the employees. Obviously, that, 
that's the thing that people want and you're just giving it to them. Yeah. And I've, I've heard many cases where companies and employees are just demanding it and saying, look, I'm not going to, I'm just going to quit. If you don't, if you don't let me work remote, I'm going to quit. So, because yeah. yeah, I, I want it so much. This great resignation yeah. that occurred in across the state. So uh, the, the big shoe, yeah, as we call it, Scotland. I think that people are still figuring it out. They, they haven't really got into the total, even though it was quite a while that some of them were working like half a year, a year, completely remotely. They, they still didn't quite get it into a habit and they didn't quite figure out what their strategy is going to be. I've seen that in, in companies like larger companies like banks in, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, my sister works for a bank and I, I don't think they've figured out their strategy yet. Yeah. Yeah, there was a tease for a while, it seemed. It was like, we're going to keep this going, we're going to run the experiment. And then after COVID, there was a, a kind of whip that said, okay, we're back. And a lot of it pulled off. Um, but there it, it was interesting points where we, we heard in some different professions and uh, in some therapeutic contexts when people were doing uh, online therapy because they were in their safe space and their home for, for some of them. Uh, the level to which they would express themselves and th the work that they would do therapeutically um, was focusing actually that they then needed to just say to the client, hey, you know, you've done a, a deeper work than we'd often normally pace. So there was yeah. points where people could progress through different um, moments of closure or or their their work because there was a safety and the space that they could create. Um, so, so it was an interesting one of, of emotional conversations. You know, you're often looking yeah. at those connected, but some of the more reflective work, as you say, for folks of an introvert processing tendency, that there was advantage that came out, there could be deeper thought. Yeah. I, I think there is obviously the negative of the uh, social for some people. So if they're working from home, and they don't have anyone else that they're living with, so they're by themselves, and they're a bit introverted, they might feel okay for a while. They're just working, 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 not seeing any people just by themselves. But I think it is really not good that they're, they're not in contact with other people face-to-face, yeah. -face. and so that can be destructive. I, I, I haven't seen that happen that much. I see it as more the minority of people that are in that situation, but it's definitely something to watch out for that, that uh, the person's not social and they don't have a family that they're living with. It's, it's a, a real problem. Right. Right. And with the possibilities now around remote work, normalizing, um, did, did you ever think it would become the norm? Did you have faith or, um, are you just suddenly like 10 years in being like, look, I've told you the same thing for 10 years, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you see now yeah. in the future? Because this is normalized. I think it is semi-normalized. I think they're going to, it's going to evolve more in that direction that I, of the totally global connected uh, work remote or people in offices. And I think there's going to be a dichotomy. It's going to be, you really going to see this is remote and it's going to be quite a lot of jobs that are remote and then it's office and there's there's going to be two streams almost i don't think there's going to be so much in the middle i think you're going to have when you pick a job you're going to be one of the remote people you're going to be one of the office yeah. people okay and and you then you just 
basically that's the first thing that you select when you select a job is is it remote or is it office wow so we won't have to yeah. use the word hybrid three times a day like we did <laughs> yeah that's my theory is that the hybrid concept is going to go away it will just be hybrid will be office essentially hybrid is is office that you can have a little flexibility but yeah i mean most employers were doing that even if they're really friendly employers they were doing that before yeah COVID as well they were letting if, if you had to pick up your kid from school you just go and pick them up so that it's not that big a deal yeah and what what i think i enjoy about the remote work conversation is it tends to pull at something wider about the nature of work and the nature of contribution um so part of the conversation says is there more that we have in life that we can access by you know bringing work into a, a flexible space whether that's family time um health exercise um what what do you think people are looking for in terms of meaning around work yeah meaning is a really interesting one because they, they talk about it people talk about having meaning from work but I think in a lot of cases, people are just doing work essentially like the money is is the biggest ingredient. Like they feel like they need to earn money in order to get a job. So I'm I'm not so sure how much meaning comes from the work in reality. I think you get a certain amount of meaning from all types of work where you've accomplished something like you've you you clean an apartment right it's yeah. it's not it's you there's a satisfaction in getting things clean and like i i sometimes vacuum and you, you feel satisfied oh wow it's cleaned up <laughs> i mean similar to that all types of work or most types of work would have that level of satisfaction yeah and i think trying to look into this really deep my job is impacting the world when i look at that uh I think there's not that many jobs that really impact the world so greatly. There's a lot of businesses that you look at them and they, yeah, that's, it's dubious. Okay. Like, like Coca-Cola destroying people's health, pizza, destroying people's health, um, oil, destroying the environment. I mean, you, you, you keep going like banks. Okay. destroying the little person. Right? I mean, <laughs> it's all, there's negatives with with all of these businesses, but they like that's also a very narrow view because they actually also have a lot of positives. Sure. So I think um, it's very rare to see a business where it's just like, wow, that is so inspiring, that is mm -hmm. so motivating, that this is going to change the world in such a positive way. Um, I think if you could find that, that is that is really really cool. But I I think where I've come to is thinking that actually my business serves wealthy people essentially because, or at least middle, they're not actually wealth. Wealth is not the correct term, but middle income at least yeah. the people that are, that are using my software are generally people that are, are educated. They've, I mean, they're not going to be doing knowledge work if they're not educated. So they're well, wealthy from a, a global standpoint. They're not earning a dollar a day, basically. Yeah. So therefore, they're, they're a lot wealthier than the, the poorest people in the world. Now, if I want to do something that really benefits people, the people that need the most help are ones that are earning a dollar a day, not the people that are earning 
fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, like there's there's dramatic difference. Like if a person's earning a dollar a day, three hundred and sixty five dollars a year, or you know, two or three dollars a day, a thousand dollars a year. It's so much more resources that I can put in to help that person, you know, because fifty dollars is the world of difference to that person. Yeah, you know, for someone who's who's earning fifty thousand, giving them fifty dollars is like what you're trying to help me with fifty dollars? You are you crazy? Like that's so. What I'm saying is that I can help people so much greater that are on that are at the poorest in, in yeah. the world, but my software doesn't serve that. Right. I don't know how to even create a business that serves those people. Yeah. Right. So the real meaning or how I can create the biggest impact in the world is not from my business. And it's a, it's a psychology that's a bit weird for people. Sometimes they think, well, I should be creating meaning and helping people from my business. But really, yes, I am doing it to some extent. But the biggest help that I can have is by earning money, getting profits, and then contributing that in some way to people that are the poorest in the world because they're the ones who need it the most. Right. Um, so that's my that's sort of the philosophy of the effective altruism, which yes. is where I got that philosophy from. Okay. And I had an example of that. I don't know if you know the WhatsApp, the guys who started WhatsApp. So they they were concerned. I I, I don't know if this story is one hundred percent accurate, but I I remember them saying this story that they got like twenty billion for WhatsApp, and then they didn't like what Facebook was doing to WhatsApp because it's taking away the the user's privacy, right? Yeah. So um, they foregoed a billion dollars of uh, of their payout because they're like, no, I don't want to work anymore. I'm not going to get this billion dollars. And I was, I was just like, are you really concerned about that privacy? Then is that like more somebody who's like doesn't have enough to eat versus someone who doesn't have privacy? Like, which is more important? It's obvious that the person not having enough to eat is like a much bigger problem. Right. Not having privacy is like a, a, a silly problem. They don't care. Like take away all my privacy and give me food. Like they, it's, it's a, it's that kind of, um, that kind of concept. So like what I think they should have done is actually just take the money and give the billion dollars to the poorest people in the world that would have done much better good overall. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's something about like when people are going after when they're in those positions where they they have the potential of enormous wealth, significant wealth, that um, the process of receiving that money and what you do with it, if it's seen through the lens of how could this help the most people, um, that that actually has an ethical um, challenge back the other way to think positively about generating wealth and income uh, for the purposes of doing good with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's yeah. um, it's it's an interesting one. So one of the aspects of remote work, even just dialing back to that, is has there been situations where, um, in terms of people, because it opens up the different nations that people would work from, um, that getting around some of the employment possibilities there. Uh, could be pretty interesting. So if, if if there's somebody in the organization, say a team of 10, and they're from 10 different nations doing similar jobs, um, you know, and say they're getting paid the, the 20, 20 bucks an hour, 
um, the impact of 20 bucks an hour in 10 different nations could be really different. How do you sort of understand yeah. that? Or, or how do organizations think through that? Because I can see that being the yeah. point that the wealth could, could transfer quickly and transformatively um, into those places. Yeah, I, I do think that is a quite a big impact. Still, though, those people that are earning $20 an hour in uh, developing countries or poorer countries, they're still the richest people in those countries. So you're still helping by providing jobs to them. You're yeah. you're helping the richest person or middle income, not rich, but yeah. middle income people in the poor countries. But they are it's very interesting the whole dynamics of how that works because there's huge income inequalities in terms of uh, job salaries and in some areas like in development it's starting to equalize a bit where you're getting developers anywhere in the world any country are getting high salaries for that country and and like getting closer to us it's not the same okay because if you if you live in silicon valley you get a premium but a lot of the premium now is due to skill, mm. not due to location. Uh, and so what I think that eventually it'll get to the stage where you're living in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. If you have the skills, then you can actually get a similar job and salary level than you can in London. Yeah. Um, so that will happen. And, and, but I think that's, that's an evolution and, and, that the difference in, in skills will be really what leads to the difference in pay. Right. Wow. And when, um, yeah, I mean, that is that, does that feel exciting? Does that feel daunting? Does it, how does that balance out how economies work further afield? Yeah, I, I think it will change things for knowledge work because if you don't have the skills and you're doing knowledge work, something that can be done in uh, another country, then you, you're going to be very, very challenged living in a, a high, high wage country because you're literally competing with the entire world if you're doing certain types of work. And we saw that starting with things like uh, data entry, right? That was the entry level thing. And then call centers, and now it's software development and it could be accounting. Um, I think that it's, it's, it is challenging that most of the developing countries don't have the same level of education. So that does lead to the differences in, in skills and they don't have the same level of experience or leg up. Yeah. So it takes quite a while for that cycle to get, um, yeah. but they're very, can be very, very motivated. And there are cases where people in Pakistan or Philippines are, are equally skilled and like five times less wage than the UK. Right. And that doesn't make sense. Like, cause if you're a business owner and you're working remotely, you should just hire the person because for economic reasons, you should hire the person who's got the, uh, lower wage, but is just has the high skills as well. Right. Ah, um, so this idea of um, effective altruism uh, sounds sounds like it's you know it sounds ideal. Um, sounds like it could be a really helpful lens to look at at the world through. How how did you come across it, and what sort of um, what take do you have on the impact that could have going forward? I read 
a few different things. I read the Life You Can Save book, which is really by Peter Singer, which is a really fantastic yeah. book. There's also uh, Will McCaskill has a book on effective altruism. So it just got infected my psyche. It just makes sense to me. I think the people that are interested in this tend to be a bit more nerdy because they're thinking about the actual impact of the the dollars that they have or the work it does it's not just about money too right it's also about selecting a job that will have the biggest impact that could be going into government right because governments can have a huge impact so i think it's a really really interesting concept i've i've found that it is helpful for me in sustaining motivation so my motivation for my business now is multifaceted. So it's basically what we do as a business, the employees, right? It's making money for myself. It's making money for my family. Yeah. It's it's also a big part is making money to give it away to, to people that are in need as well. So adding together all of those facets of motivation is what combines and, and I, it's that together gives me a lot of motivation and drive. Yeah. But I have this interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, I feel like a lot of desire to contribute and to give money to people. And I am giving, like I'm giving currently 10% of my income to charity. Um, so maybe that's not very much, but you know, I'm going to contribute and then also gain more resources and then give some of that. So that's my decision at the moment. But I also recognize that I'm quite selfish, right? I'm doing, I do buy expensive things. Um, I have a very expensive house. Uh, just just ordered a Tesla car. It's also very expensive, you know. So all of these things that are really selfish acts. Um, you could argue that Telstra is good for the, Tesla is good for the environment, but it's yeah. a very expensive way to be good for the environment, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that like I'm trying to I, I'm trying to kind of mesh together the, that concept of being selfish. Yes, I am selfish. I'm focused on my family. I kind of think about it as sort of yourself, your family, your community, and then the world. Yeah. And and it sort of cascading out like that. I think it is a good way to think about it because right. I, I don't really know anyone who just goes, This is the world, I'm not focused on myself or my family, and maybe that's destructive but then if you only have yourself and your family because you see other people like just that's all they think about and they don't think about their community they don't think about the world then i think that's also very narrow-minded especially if you have a lot of resources like Mm -hmm. you should be starting to think more beyond your family yeah would would there be for you a connection between um something that's about giving away uh and you know invest in wider community and something that is about loving good things love your family like what what's the motivator that connects those to a kind of higher level for you that's a good good question yeah uh it would be good to connect it more and one way is is actually we can go and visit some of the charity work that i'm supporting so that way my family is seeing is going on a holiday but it's not a holiday just to go skiing and have fun. It's a holiday to actually visit work that's making a difference. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to connect it. Right. Yeah, there, there was an interesting idea from the writer and uh, Anthony DeMello. He wrote this book 
uh, I believe it's called Awareness. I listened to it, it's like an audio book of it may be similar to Landmark Forum. Um, but he he had a slightly more jovial tone than I've heard <laughs> from some of them. And and his some of his exploration was this kind of humorful check with folks saying, Hey, you know, maybe everyone, the people that are giving all the money away, maybe that's just as selfish from the motivation that they've got. You know, maybe that's a totally self-gratifying experience. And and I guess at one level, he's like, the underlying bit is just to go, maybe part of us is just always looking to kind of come to peace, come to terms with what we've got, whether that's, you know, going for it uh, and investing in things that, that we own or giving it away. It can, it can often come from the same motivator. But there's something about the honesty of that, of just recognising, like, we're we're looking for ways to to find meaning. We're looking for ways to to connect, and um, yeah, that that all of, all of it's you know is coming from a route to uh, contribute and and to find ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I I think it can be. I, I there's certainly some benefit that I get from giving money away, uh, that I think it's it's limited because it's very. It's more of an intellectual exercise that I'm thinking yeah. like, what do I think is the biggest thing that I'm going to have yeah. in terms of benefit in the world by giving this money away? I haven't so far been visiting the actual work yeah. of the money that I'm giving away. And so that's, so I suppose when I do that and then I'm a bit more hands-on, but the reality is that my I'm probably best served by making more money and giving it away. That's where I'm good at. That's what yeah. I'm good at currently. And if I then spend all of my time trying to do charity work, I'm not going to be as good at making the money to give to the charity. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a it's a funny concept, but it's actually uh, similar to what Warren Buffett. And if you know Warren Buffett is like yeah. this, the richest or second richest person in the U.S. He's an amazing investor. So he actually just gave all his money away pretty much like 99%, but he's giving it to the Gates Foundation because he knows that Bill Gates is, he is devoted to giving all the money away. He stopped working on his business and he's just, he's devoted to that. And Warren Buffett doesn't want to spend his time. He knows that he's good at investing. He doesn't want to do anything else. So he just gives all his money away. It's a very, very selfless, I think it's a selfless act, but it comes from the concept of just, like just really looking at it logically, like I don't need this money. I mean, that's the reality. Like buying a, he knows that that buying a mega yacht is not going to make him happy. Yeah. So, what else can he buy for himself? Like it's it's silly. Yeah. It's just a waste of time and money, and he doesn't want to do it. And yeah. and I I really respect that. Right. That really understanding that that you that it's not something that makes you happy to buy all of this stuff. Um, once you get that at your core, then look, why are you even working past a certain point of money like at all? That's the first question. And then you've got to really, really come up with an answer to that. Uh-huh. It's it's tricky for me because I, I am at a point where like I don't have to work money wise. I I can do something else if I want to. Uh, so I have to I have to think about what I really want to do with my life. And that's uh, it's constant thought and yeah and concept meditation that i'm going through is to, to figure that out ah uh, yeah and um what's helping you 
what's helping you figure it out at the moment? What what are you using to explore that frame? I don't have an actual answer because I, one thing that I did think about is that I don't know if I want to do this business for the next 20 years. And so like try to figure out a business that I am more, maybe more inspired about. So is this the only business that I want to do? Um, so I thought about that, but then I actually just, I, I literally did a spreadsheet of all of the different things that I could do with my life. And then I thought about what's the probability that it's going to lead to, um, happiness to contributing to society so i, I scored on all these different things wow. and i ended up coming down to well it's hard to tell because there's a lot of uncertainties and some of them are similar but mostly i came to well what i'm doing now is is it yeah because i think that you've also <laughs> you also come to uh, you also there's this grass is greener thing right you think yeah. of, well there's something else out, out there which is yeah which is better yeah yeah there's there's an interesting thing of um when people hit maybe that first mountain peak and they think this is the thing i was dreaming of for and sometimes it's the dream from age 16 or as a young person people hit that like you say sometimes it's a real disappointment or it's or it's just a a quiet sort of dulling of passion or motivation um i often yeah. find people in their 30s are in this stage where they're trying to be satisfied with where they are or find contentment and, and present thought and, and be in the dream that they had but at the same time they they feel appetite they feel like they could push for something else and and there's this mix yeah. of how to step out into the next thing without totally blowing up the current context and you know burning bridges or catastrophizing their current job their current passion in order to have the confidence mm-hmm. or the courage to step into the next but to hold that, yeah. that space and um, I think you've solved it by just, I love that, do a spreadsheet, <laughs> assess it. Um, that's that's a, a really good way to just get after what you're passionate about. Where can you do the most good? Um, yeah. And this, so the idea of effective altruism, um, how, how would you use it as a lens to look at potential charities, potential causes, and decide what is the most good. So again, I actually used a spreadsheet. So I actually looked at uh, dozens of charities. I looked at what is the impact that they do, they have for the amount of dollar that you spend, and then I compare those impacts. Wow. It's quite hard to do because yeah. they don't really have published impacts or their estimates, but I believe that it's better to have an estimate than nothing. Yeah. So I would look at this charity for this amount of dollars. I can help uh, you know a person in in this way. Yeah. And then I try to compare and actually look at what's the dollars that it that it takes to move lift a child out of poverty, lift it to dramatically improve a, a child's life. So I have a a goal to help ten thousand children to be dramatically improve like from from destitution to yeah. or, or saving their life or destitution to being in a, having a good life so i actually look at charities and actually try to figure out what is the dollar that it takes for them to do, have that impact wow. so to look into it research takes some time to to look at it i also looked at the impact so it's basically dr- in dramatically improving a child's life yeah for how many dollars 
And then the other one I looked at is how much it would cost to save someone's life, which is maybe not the right way to look at it. So I, I changed it more to the dramatically improved. Yes. And um, then I evaluated lots of charities based on, on that. I, I have been looking at, like, I do believe in environment causes as well. Um, I haven't so far been able to figure out like here's the impact of the environmental cause for the dollar spent. And if I don't know what the exact impact is, then I'm a little hesitant to to do it, to invest in it. But I think another charity type of charity that can be a bit uncertain, but it's interesting is policy work. So if you're actually trying to influence governments, in certain directions, then you could influence billions of dollars of funding and you can, uh, this could be actually a good area for environment. So I do, uh, I am interested in looking into, into things that would influence the environment through government policy. So you, for a million dollars budget, you could influence the government's policy in a, in a big way. And I think that can have a very dramatic impact as well. Yeah. So that's a few of the ways that I'm looking at it. That's fascinating. Um, I'd be a really interesting resource as a future possibility for people because p- particularly when we deal a lot with uh, overwhelm when it comes to the issues observed in the world, um, maybe especially in the last yeah. two or three years. It's fascinating, especially with an emerging generation that are deeply passionate about social issues, well-being, um, but how to actually combine passion with analytics, metrics, something that you can, as you say, get a best steer on. Um, yeah, be a fast. There'd be an interesting coming together of that raw passion, which often comes with complete overwhelm, um, alongside the analytic, the uh, the engineering perspective. Um, but there's a yeah. gift in that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm fascinated just some of the ways that 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 you work day to day in yourself. You know what what are some of the routines or um, books you're reading, thought processes that that help steer you uh, that you're finding beneficial right now. At the moment, I'm focused on my business, and I'm running that business has 130 staff, and uh, so I've got a lot of regular meetings that I have uh, with my with my team. I have uh, things that I'm watching and reading about that. I'm a part of some different groups, software groups, software as a service, which is my type of business. So I'm focused a lot on that. And then other than that, I read a wide-ranging variety of things. I read The Economist and I read I'm interested in life extension. I think that's a really interesting area. I'm also yeah. interested in technology and AI and machine learning. Yeah. So I'm, I'm constantly reading about that. I'll, I'll read about the effective altruism as well. Yeah. So I do try to have enough time to be able to read you know, different things. I'm, I'm also in a different stage of life where I'm not working hard all the time. I'm, I'm probably doing about 40 hours a week in general, but I'm, I'm having a lot more balance that can going scuba diving and going for a walk and yeah. nature and all this other stuff as well. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. We could, um, we could deep dive into David Sinclair's work on, uh, life extension or the, the possibility yeah. around AI that's looming. Uh, particularly I know that 
Will McCaskill has got great thoughtful concern on the future with AI and um, there's connection with effective altruism and how to navigate uh, AI. So it's it's deeply yeah. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. But I, I haven't really done anything you know practical in that area uh, in, in terms of AI. I've just I've just learned about it. Um, so I, I I feel like it's more just a fascination rather than a something that I'm involved with. But I have thought about getting in an AI business in the future, but it just it hasn't hasn't evolved that way yet. Yeah. It's, it seems like you're poised to explore. You've got this amazing work with uh, with remote work and running remote that's happening. You've got the interest of altruism and charity. Um, if if in two years' time, you know, something something came to fruition for you that you were looking forward to this you know, and the passion of your future, what what would you hope the world could look like in maybe two years' time that, that would feel satisfying for you? Being on the board of a, uh, a charity, being more involved in this and the effect of altruism, not, not hands-on day-to-day, but on a board level. Yeah. I'd love to do that, and I'd love to continue to grow my business and give more to the business, to charities and have that be really, really, really effective. and. Uh, to be meeting and, and looking at work that will have the, the greatest impact. And, and probably I'd like to, I'm not sure of the two-year time frame, but maybe in a longer time frame to actually have a grant um, process where I can give to smaller charities. Sometimes I think smaller things can have a really, really big impact. So I'd like to, to look at that as well. So lots of things that I'm excited about from the effective altruism and business topic point of view yeah oh brilliant so uh where, where can people connect with you and um find out about what you're doing and, yeah, and jump in yeah so you can there's a book running remote which is available on amazon and also the conference running remote we're going to have that next year in portugal and uh, so you can you can search for me there uh basically just you know try to get in contact through um, the contact me page there that would be that's probably the easiest way yeah okay well yeah. mate I'm, I'm inspired and left inspired by the the work you're doing but how you're thinking about it i think this whole um philosophy and community around effective altruism is uh has some depth to it and uh, it's just it's encouraging to know that folks who are growing in business and are thinking about the global impact of that so Thank you for time and thanks thanks for reaching out. It was great. Yeah, yeah, it's great to chat. Well, thank you so much for joining the conversation with Rob and myself. You can check out his work again at runningremote.com and the book is now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. We're going to be doing more podcasts soon, so if you have guest recommendations or anything that you'd like to get in touch about, please drop me an email on mark at markcammon.co please continue to like and share and subscribe to the podcast as that really helps the podcast get discovered by other people. Thank you for joining us and I hope that you have a great week.